0: One of the biggest um, emphases of our entire culture is improvement, human improvement. In fact, psychology today said this, From the dawn of recorded time, humans have sought to better themselves and their lot in life. And that's, of course, true. That's why we've got all these beautiful buildings and we have all of the great devices and pleasures that we have today. People are constantly trying to improve themselves. It's one of the greatest emphases in our culture. If you went to any bookstore, anywhere in our nation, you'd find one of the largest sections in that bookstore are self-help books. There are tons and tons of them. Um, If you want to turn on a TV and read magazines, you'll find that some of the most prominent faces and people are what you would call self-improvement gurus. Deepak Chopra, Eckhart Tolle, Jack Canfield, Dale Carnegie, Stephen Covey, Tony Robbins, on and on you can go, Um, even like Oprah Winfrey. These are basically self-help people, people trying to help people improve their lives. Uh, In the Christian realm, you have what are called the power of positive thinking preachers and teachers. There are many of these. There are some very famous ones like Norman Vincent Peale and... um, Um, Dale Carnegie, of course, and Robert Schuller, and today maybe even Joel Osteen. Um, We, as as Americans, when we get to the month of December, people are busily trying to put together their New Year's resolutions. That doesn't mean we follow them, but we try. And what's the purpose of those? Well, the purpose is to try to do better in some aspect of human improvement. The desire for human improvement is universal. Uh, all of us have that. However, the means for accomplishing human improvement differ uh, a little bit. Though, there's a lot of commonality there. If you look into any of these gurus, any of these people on television, any of them in any of these books, you'll find that they're common themes. Number one, they're all going to say, if you want to improve, you've got to take responsibility for your actions. You can't If you foist that off on somebody else, it won't work. You must take personal responsibility for your actions. They They will tell you that you have to make good choices. You have to put in the effort and hard work. You need determination. You need willpower. You need to restructure habits. And maybe even in the environment in which you live in order to improve. Well, God's interested in human improvement as well. The theological word for human or improving one's life as a Christian, the theological word is called sanctification. comes from the word sanct, saint. How do we become better Christians? I guess you could call it that way. And in fact, in the book of Romans, Paul, who wrote this, is going to devote three whole chapters to the subject of how do we improve as Christians? Now remember, he started off with really bad news. For three chapters, he gives us the bad news. The bad news is, you don't have a prayer. Not a single one of you is righteous. There's no one who's even good. There's no one in the world has a prayer of being perfect. You can't even come close. Which is really bad news though it's not really bad news. Because once you really understand that bad news and you see that that's true of you, you're on the doorstep of some really good news. And then the next three chapters, chapters 3, 4, and 5, he's going to give us some good news. Incredibly good news. The good news is this. Righteousness, which is the ultimate goal, being able to stand rightly before God. Who in the world thinks you can stand before God? Be right before God? Well, the Bible says you can do that. The problem is none of us in and of ourselves are right with God, but we can stand in God's presence in right standing with God. How? Well, we've got to be righteous. How do you get to be righteous? Well, you can't earn it. You can't merit it, but there is one who provided, who lived a righteous life, perfectly righteous, who died a righteous death, and in his death he took all of the penalties for the sin that we had accumulated for all human beings because he is God in human flesh, Jesus. And then he offers us the gift of his righteousness. How do you get it? Work hard? No. Go to church? No. Pay money? No. Go through rituals? No. You trust that what God said is true for you. That's called faith. And so it starts with the bad news and then this incredibly good news. We are able to have right standing before God based on our trust that what Jesus did on the cross applies to me. That's good news. But, there's a problem. The problem is this. Okay, if we believe that we're, we, become, we have right standing before God based on our trust in what Jesus did for us, well, then how do we grow as Christians? Because, frankly, if Jesus died for us and we trust that, the Bible says we get to go to heaven. That's nice. What about here? What about life here? Well, can't we do whatever we want then? I mean, can't you just, uh, if, if, you, if you're, you go to heaven not based on going to church or paying money or doing good works or doing religious things, well, can't you just do whatever you want? I guess you can, but that's not of any way to grow. So now for three chapters, Romans 6, 7, and 8 the Apostle Paul is going to go into a long explanation of how you grow as a Christian. And it's very, very important. And interestingly, it's not what you're going to hear in the culture. And in fact, it's not what you're going to hear in a lot of churches either. Because frankly, one of the greatest dangers we have as Christians or religious people is that we will slip into what the Bible calls legalism. We slip into the understanding that the way you please God is by following the rules. The Apostle Paul would say, no, you did not become a Christian by following the rules. You became a Christian by faith in what God did for you. And you're not going to grow by following the rules either. Not that the rules are bad, and he's going to talk about that. But the way we grow as Christians is different. And in fact, today, there are going to be three words. And if you only learn these three words, I think you'll have learned a lot. He's going to use the word no. K-N-O-W, not N-O. No. Because some people, in fact, that's a good religious thing. People say, you want to grow? Just say no. But Paul would say, yes, just say no. K-N-O-W. Yes, that is the root to growing as a Christian. But just saying no is not the root. That won't work. Just say no, K-N-O-W, three times. He's going to say these are things you must know. You've got to know them. You've got to know them. And now as we get into chapter 6, for the first time in the whole book of Romans, I don't know if you've picked up on this. In fact, I'm sure you haven't. There has not been to this point in Romans not even one command not once has god said in six chapters this is what you must do but now he's going to change that because the essence of growing as a christian doesn't start with what you do it starts with who you are and what you know it begins in the mind and as you know almost everything it begins in the mind so he's going to say three times this is what you must know you must know you must know And then he's going to use the word you must count. That's a good uh, mathematical term. You must count. In fact, it is a mathematical term. You must take what you know and actually count that as true in the way you live your life. Starts with knowing, then counting. And then he's going to use the word offer or yield. Now you've got to make some choices. It doesn't begin with your choices. It begins with what you know to be true. And then you count that to be true for you. And then you offer yourself to God. And this is just the first of several lessons on how we grow as Christians. So if you have a Bible, let's begin with Romans chapter 6. And we're going to read the first four verses. And we're going to encounter our first know. K-N-O-W. Here it goes. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Now it begins with a question. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace might increase? And do you see where that comes from? If in fact we have right standing before God. That's also the word justification, which means God, based on our faith in Jesus, declares us innocent of all sin. Well, let's say you've done something really wrong, and you were brought before the court, and you were, it was shown that what you did was absolutely wrong, and you're guilty. But the judge, when he comes to the sentencing, says... Do you trust that I have the ability to set you free? And you go, yeah. Okay. Innocent. Now, if you did that in America, people would be really ticked at you. In fact, if you did that anywhere in the world, they'd say, how dare you? And that judge would lose their job very quickly. But that's what God has done. But now, if that person who had committed a crime has been declared innocent by the judge... And by the way, he didn't just declare that without anything. He says, I declare you innocent because somebody has already paid the price for what you did in full. Your penalty has been paid in full. That's Jesus. Well, that person who committed the crime, they walk right out of the court. And you know what they can do? They can do whatever they want. Can't they? They can't be brought back before the court for that crime. They can do whatever they want. In fact, if I get called before that judge again, maybe he'll do the same thing for me. And I can do it again and again and again and again. I think I'm going to do whatever I want. That's the question. And maybe you could say it this way. A child says to, maybe your children do this to you. Mom! I'm going to keep my room as messy as I can so that the whole neighborhood will be able to see what a good housekeeper you are when you clean it for me. (laughs) Mothers, how many of you have pulled that one? No, you haven't done that yet. Well, you can work on that one. Or here's the, uh, the person who's homeless and without a job. They say, I'm not going to work So that I can give the American government an opportunity to demonstrate how benevolent it is. This one happens to be real. This is great, not working, getting government checks, because then we can just say, what a good government we have. It takes good care of its people. That's the equivalent of this statement. And of course, the Apostle Paul says, what? That's absurd. You could say it this way. Perish the thought. No way. What a ghastly thought to think that you would have someone died for you and you would take advantage of that grace. Don't you know that when you were baptized, and by the way, baptism was for us it's really simple. We go into a tank and And we say, you know, I believe in Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord, etc. But you see, in the early centuries, it could be a death sentence. And for many of these people, it was not just a death sentence. It was the loss of their family. Because what you're stating when you were baptized, let's say you were Jewish, and all of the early converts to Christianity were Jewish. What they were saying is, I declare that Jesus Christ is the Messiah that we have longed for, for all of our history, and He is God in human flesh, and I believe that He died on the cross for my sins, and I now identify with His death, His burial, and His resurrection, I am a Christian. Well, that caused many people to lose their family, and it still does today. In many places in the world, maybe even in this area here, you lose your family. That's a big, big choice. It's a tough thing to do. In our world today, if you're a Muslim, you grew up in a Muslim country, and you declare that Jesus Christ is your Savior, there, there's hell to pay. It's really, really, really difficult. You may well lose your family. And so when these people were baptized, they were making a statement, I have, ch- I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided, and, and when I was baptized, I, I, I said, my sins were buried with were. were, were were carried by Jesus on the cross. My sins were buried with Jesus in the tomb, and my life has been raised with Jesus Christ in his resurrection and ascension. That's what it means to be a Christian. So the Apostle Paul says, Don't you know that when you were baptized, something died? Something died. What died? Did your sinful nature die? Did you stop sinning? How many of you pulled that one off? Good. None of us. Um, what died? Did, did you now henceforth no longer be tempted by sin? How many of you have stopped being tempted by sin? Oh, I don't see any hands, nor mine. What changed? This is what died. Something incredibly important died. The penalty of your sin is done. It's gone. Why? Why? Jesus paid the penalty in full. It's gone. There's no penalty anymore. You cannot be brought, you will not be bought before the bar of God's justice. And and, and none of your sins will be accounted. Where are they? They're They're as far as the east is from the west. God does not remember our sins anymore the penalty of our sin has been paid in full by Jesus but there's a problem we don't know this now you might think to yourself well um, where does that take place in real life where people sin because they think they're saved well have have you ever watched the Disney movie Anastasia remember the villain his name is Rasputin he's a real person he was a, a, he was a really bad man. He was an occultic, but he was part of a Christian sect that believed that the more sin you did, the better you became. And they, they, they went headlong into sexual sins because they, they believed, um, this is what he says, their beliefs included regarding sin as a necessary part of your life. They believed that by deliberately committing fornication... We, you would become closer to God. In fact, Rasputin claimed he was doing God a favor by living bodily. Not bodily, bodily, badly. He thought, that's just the way you're supposed to live. And that's what Paul's addressing here. Paul says, no. The first point, the first thing God wants us to know about how do we grow as Christians is this. You must know That Christ's defeat of sin on the cross and through his resurrection and our identification with him, symbolized by baptism, means that we share Jesus' relationship to sin dead. The penalty of sin has been paid in full. That is amazing. Someone wrote a cartoon. And if you can picture this cartoon, it goes something like this. It's in a courtroom. Your Honor, this is the attorney speaking, although my client has admitted his guilt and the evidence against him is altogether damning and irreparable, in light of this massive coronary of 15 seconds ago, further proceedings against him would be moot. In other words, he's dead. So the trial is over. We are to know that sin's penalty has been paid in full. One of the songs that that you probably know, you've probably sung it many times here throughout the years, is It Is Well With My Soul, written by Horatio Spafford. It's quite a story behind that. But here's one of my favorite lines from that song. It goes this way. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin... Not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. That's true. And that's one of the reasons that we, our our hymns, and thank you, Shannon, for what you did today focusing on scripture and our our worship. It was marvelous. That's the power of singing and worship. Because, frankly, I know as a preacher, you're going to forget most of what I say today. But, but, but the songs, the songs stick. They stick. That's why we need good theology, good scripture in our songs like we did today. Because they do stick in our minds. I will be singing Hallelujah, <laughs> Because we sang it this morning. Those songs kind of stick in my mind. And I think they will in yours as well. But the beauty of this song, like by Bafford, is this. My sin, not in part, but the whole... It's been nailed to the cross. I bear it no more. We're to know this, but that's only the first no. Here's the second no. And these are verses 5 to 7. For if we have been united with him in death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For, here's the no, for we know That our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Have you stopped sinning when you became a Christian? No. In fact, in some ways it gets worse. We have not stopped sinning. But what changed... Something changed when we became Christians with regard to sin. The penalty of sin has been paid in full by Jesus, but something else has happened. The power of sin has been broken. You see, the Bible is quite clear that though we don't know it, we are slaves of sin. And we're going to come to that next week, Lord willing. We're slaves of sin. We are, we're under, we're under the control of the evil one, the prince of the power of the air. The Bible's clear about this. So we basically go about our lives thinking we're independent moral agents, which we are not. We're basically pawns of the evil one. But when we have been bought at the price of the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus, something changed. The power of sin was broken. Does that mean we don't sin anymore? No, but it does mean we don't have to sin anymore because now we actually do have a choice. Someone wrote this. Our tie to Adam is dissolved. He and the sins and death he represents no longer dictate terms to us. Progress in the Christian life will come as we learn to live out the new relationship God has put in us. The power of sin has been broken. Paul's second point in his explanation of sanctification is that the enslaving power of sin has been broken for us who are in Christ. And we are supposed to know this. Since we talked about hymns, here's another hymn. This one you've probably sung here many times in the years past. Maybe not as much today. Remember the song, Oh for a Thousand Tongues to Sing? You ever sung that before? I'll bet you have. But here's the line. Listen, Listen to the words. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. Did you hear that? He breaks the power of canceled sin. Sin has been canceled on the cross by Jesus' resurrection, but it's still power is there. He breaks the power. That's why we sing these songs. A good song of worship is theologically powerful. This is powerful. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the vilest clean. His blood availed for me. He breaks the power of canceled sin. That's the second thing we are to know. But there's a third one. And this is in verses 8 to 10. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. You probably memorized, it's probably one of the verses like we did at the beginning of the service today that you may have learned. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, not only when Jesus, when we're in Christ, has the penalty of sin been paid in full, the power of sin has been broken. But there's another powerful thing that's happened, is that the wage of sin has been funded forever. The wage of sin. Sin creates a wage. But Jesus, by his death, he funded it forever. So the wage of sin, which is death, no longer has any control over us, and we're to know this. It's extremely important that we know it. A, a song that is more recent, a hymn by, um, by uh, Stuart Townsend and, and, uh, Townend and, um, and Keith Getty, is called In Christ Alone. You sing that here too, I'm sure? In Christ Alone. Listen to the words. There in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain. Then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave, he rose again. And as he, Jesus, stands in victory, listen to the next line, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. The curse of sin is death. Sin's curse has lost its grip on me, for I am his and he is mine. I've been bought with the precious blood of Christ. The penalty of sin is paid in full. The power of sin is broken. We do not have to sin. We can choose. And the curse, the wage of sin, which is death, is gone. We don't have to fear death. Wow. That's pretty powerful. So, what do we do about it? And now, for the first time in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul is going to tell us things we must do. Here it goes. Verses 11 to 14. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin. That's a command. Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not, there's a command, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to Him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under law, but under grace. We are not called on to pretend that we're dead to sin. We're not called on to um, be positive thinkers, or we're not called that this is the ideal toward which we should pursue as Christians. We are called to move now from the realm of what our minds tell us to be true into the way we live our lives. So for the first time, we're told what we should do. The word count means put it into your account. Consider this to be true and act accordingly. How would you really act? How would I really act if I really believed, if I really knew that all my sins, and there are lots, not only sins past, sins present and sins future, all of that, has been paid in full by Jesus. What if I believe that? And what if I really believed that because I'm in Christ, the grip of sin no longer has control of me? I'm a free moral agent. I can, in fact, choose. And what if I really believed that the wage of sin, which is death, is going to affect me in this body, but eternally it will not? I will live eternally. What if I really believe that? Well, it's hard to take that from your head to your heart and then to take it to your hands, to the way we live our lives. He said the way you take it from your head to your heart is you count it to be true. You have to live in light of the fact that it is true. And then you've got to make choices consistent with who you really are. Who are you really? You're someone for whom the penalty of sin has been paid, the power of sin has been broken, and the wage of sin no longer applies to you. That's who you are. There's something very interesting that happens throughout the Bible, and most of us never see it. And that is that God, this is the way God arranges things. If I asked you now to quote the Ten Commandments, I think we could come up up with some of them. But one of the things you may not remember is that before God gives the Ten Commandments, there's a verse before that. It says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery in Egypt. Therefore, God just doesn't begin with commandments. He begins with who you are and what I've done for you. If you go to the book of Ephesians, it's six chapters. You can search to the end of the universe. You will not find one command in the first three chapters. No command. Only this is who you are. This is how precious you are. This is what God has done for you in Christ. This is how special. This is what God wants you to be. God, and if you went to the book of Romans, as I said, in chapter six, it begins. If you go to the ministry of Jesus... If you go, look at Jesus' ministry chronologically, in the first half of his public ministry, he gives no commands. All he says is, hey guys, turn around, repent, and follow me. That's all he says. Check me out. And then once they've checked him out for over a year, he says, okay, here are the rules. What do you do when you have a baby? This is what you do when you have a baby. I've had five, my wife has had five of them. The day they're born, hey kid, don't wet your pants. Stop crying. Eat only on my schedule. Is that that how you raised your kids? How many commands did you give to your baby? How many? Not one. You don't give a single command to that baby for months. What what do you do? You love them. You hold them. You, You meet their needs. You cuddle them. Why? You want them to know who they are and how precious they are. And then the commands start. Do you know what we do as Christians? A person comes to Christ, we say, okay, here are the rules. No, 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 no. That's not what God does. That's not what God has ever done. The rules will ruin them. God says, no. Do you know who you are? Do you know how precious you are to me? Do you know the price I paid for you? God always puts our identity before what we're supposed to do, but we do the opposite as Christians. God doesn't reverse it, because if we reverse it, we ruin people. So the major thing we should be doing, one of the major things as the body of Christ is we should be encouraging each other in who we are in Christ. Did you know, brothers and sisters, that Christ paid for all of our sins? He considers you precious in his sight. God himself would die for you. You're that valuable to him. And he has made you unique. And he has incredible things for you to accomplish in this world. He wants you to be a light to your neighbors. He wants you to be someone who represents Jesus. That's what he made. He made you to have a life that's full and fulfilling and good. But he starts with who we are. And then what we should do. We often change them, unfortunately. Well, to grow as a Christian, we start with what we know. We know that righteousness does not come from me. It comes from God to me. I know that I am not righteous, nor can I achieve my righteousness on my own. I know that. I know that my righteousness is attained by faith, not by works or religious rituals or law. I know that as I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior, I was justified, which meant the penalty of my sins has been paid in full. When I became a Christian, I was redeemed, which means the break, my enslavement to sin has been broken, and the power of sin has been broken in the present. And Jesus' death and resurrection has procured eternal life. The wage of sin is no longer mine to worry about. But now I I am a free moral agent. In Christ Alone, the hymn that I mentioned before, there's toward the end, it says this. Here's the way to live. No guilt in life. No fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. There's no power of hell. There's no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I stand. I conclude with a story. And this one is not taken from the Bible. It's taken from Greek mythology but I think it's important in Greek mythology as you may remember they often told the story of ship captains on the Aegean and Adriatic seas that would carry on these incredible voyages and one of the greatest dangers that any ship captain faced was the sirens The sirens were these beautiful half-naked women who sang this beautiful song. And as the ships, composed only of men, would go around where and see the sirens, they were so mesmerized and so attracted to the sirens that they would go in toward them, and the ships were all wrecked on the rocks and everyone died. And so the island of the sirens was all white with the sun-bleached bones of all the sailors who had died there. Well, Odysseus or Ulysses knew that the sirens were there and he determined he would not let his his, um, his boat be capsized or destroyed by the sirens. So what he did is he commanded his sailors to tie him to the mast and then they all put blindfolds and ear um, uh, wax in their ears. And so as they started to travel to where the sirens were um, Ulysses saw them and screaming, let's turn there, let's turn there. But he couldn't get away from the mast and no one could hear him. And they succeeded. They got around the place where the sirens sang safely and the ship was not wrecked. I submit to you that that's what oftentimes we Christians do. And it works a little bit. But it's not Christianity. There was another captain, a ship captain. His name was Orpheus. Orpheus was a musician. And Orpheus was also well aware of the sirens and he knew the danger that they posed. But as the ship came close to where the sirens sang, Orpheus got out his flute and he started to play. And he played a song sweeter than the song that the sirens were singing. And so as his ship and all of its sailors looked at the sirens and heard their song, they listened to the sweeter song that Orpheus played and they went right around the rocks and the ship was not destroyed and no one lost their lives. That is Christianity. We can tie ourselves to the mast and we must do so sometimes, but our hearts are still screaming, let me out, let me out. But the key is, to learn to hear a sweeter song and follow that. Let's pray. Oh, Father, help us. You know who we are, what our nature is. Help us to hear the sweeter song of your word and to grow in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Please stand with me. And and as we leave today, maybe our benediction is this. May God bless you. And may he help all of us this week to hear a sweeter song and to follow Jesus. God bless you.